When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets Antenna Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have another preseason edition of The Deciding Point, where we break down our top 10 Division I men's and women's college tennis teams heading into the 2024 season. And folks, as of the release of this podcast, we are one week away from the first weekend of the 2024 Dual match season. We will have results to break down in our tangents on next week's pod, or perhaps we'll just straight up be getting to our regular season deciding points. That said, before we do, we still got to break down our top two teams heading into a new year. Obviously, if you have missed out on any of our coverage, just scroll down on your Great Shot podcast feed. You can hear our thoughts on teams three through 10 in the rankings. And I promise you're not going to want to miss any of those episodes. We've had a lot of fun over the past month. That said, again, we got two to go. And joining me as he has for each and every one of these podcasts thus far to break down our preseason number two, the Stanford Cardinal is, of course, a man you all know best as the returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast, founder of the No Ad No Problem podcast and blog, and, of course, my co-host for The Deciding Point, it's John J. Parsons. Jay, welcome back, my friend. Hey, great shot. How are you doing today? I'm good. Top two. We've made it. Mm, We have made it indeed. The best part about getting to this part of the list is just the fact that college tennis is so close, that we're finally going to roll the balls out, that we're going to finally have results to discuss. Hopefully, we'll have some certainty, some finality as it comes to these roster constructions. And by the way, if you want to hear our thoughts on Lisa Zar's return to Pepperdine in the ITA Top 25s, you can go check out our quick news update, a preseason tangent-filled I suppose, show. Uh, But obviously, again, our topic here is number two, Stanford, and we'll get into their 2023. We'll talk about their roster, talk about the summer, fall schedule, etc. Before we do, as we only have two schools left to go, Jay, now feels like the right time for me to offer you this opportunity for an opening tangent. Your thoughts on our men's thoughts thus far, Jay. I always like hearing your reviews. Well, look, I'm fortunate enough to be a voter in both our men's and women's poll, and we cast our votes, and then you and Chris steer the ship, you know, you record the episodes, and, you know, I get to to dip in and check out what's going on on the men's <laughs> side, and boy, is there some crazy stuff happening on the men's side. We have to discuss the TCU podcast. Okay, let's have some fun. I have learned so much from you, Gruskin, over our now going on three. This is year three of of doing this together. One of the things I've learned from you is having nuances in tiers. I feel like I've learned about (laughs) tier one and tier one A and tier (laughs) double A, triple A baseball. I mean, there's a lot of different nuances for tiers. Okay. (laughs) To include TCU in the same tier... (laughs) <laughs> as Texas here we go is honestly intellectually dishonest <laughs> and for someone who creates so many different tiers to lump these teams all together is honestly it was insulting and as a voter I felt like my voice needed to be heard on this task at hand and I want to play a game with you I want to first start with TCU Okay. TCU and Texas played four times last year. They split the matches two and two. 
pretty even teams, I would say. They were basically one and two throughout the duration of the season. Mm-hmm. Looking into 2024, what contributors to the lineup did TCU lose? Are you asking me? I am asking. They lost Fumba and Jung. Fumba, the winningest player in, in the Rodidi Big 12 era history. Jung, their winningest player in ITA indoors. Who did Texas lose? They lost no one. Okay, maybe you could say Nevin Aramilli. I'd give you that at okay. six. Who did TCU bring in? Not much. Nobody. Well, not te- nobody. I mean, again, Derek Chan's had a pretty good doubles fall. Anyways, carry on. I get your point okay. more broadly. Who did Texas bring in? Bra- which Bailey? Which Braswell? Who do you want to talk about? Which well, we can, well, we can start with the number one player in 2022 in the world junior rankings in Gilarno Bailey. Or we can talk about Jonah Braswell, the number three player from Florida last season who went 14 and nine. <laughs> now, how can you say that those two teams are on the same Gruskin tier unless we're just talking like any of these good teams are like the same tier that was, I was screaming listening <laughs> to that show. What's going on on these men's shows? Because I don't feel like you delivered that level of craziness on these women's shows. No, that was a bad take. I'm just going to take the L on this one. I have no defense. I I came in with the thought process of it was not, I didn't include them in tier one. I thought it was a three-team tier one and you know, to see you include Ohio State with your Stanford and TCU discussion was actually something I was going to come back with, but I'm deflecting now. I don't mean to because I was wrong. You're right. I folded way too easily to Chris. I should have held my ground. I have way more questions about TCU in five and six than I do about Ohio State, Texas, and Virginia, who I do think all exist on tier one on their own. And if you want to have TCU on its own tier, you want to throw Stanford in that tier as tier two, that would be the more accurate assessment. I was wrong. It was a bad take. Okay, so I appreciate that. I'll let the, if we play that 2023 tournament 100 times, TCU wins the plurality of the titles. I'll let that one slide you because like that, that was also crazy. No, I'm right about that. That I'm not going to fold from. They come in fourth. A no, fourth, no, a fourth. no. Go look at that Ohio State score. They were winning in the other three singles matches. Again, Fernley was a shell of himself. Gorsney was a shell of himself on that day. If it wasn't a million degrees against Michigan the day before, who knows what that means. Do we have to do this right now? This one no, I'm going to stand I'm, my ground I, on. I'm letting you slide They're on the this indoor one. Champions. You, took the L. you took the L. It's an outdoor championship in May. Uh, yeah, so. but they're the Texas team. And how did that work out? Well, again, this was one of the 100. Like I, I'm sticking by plurality. Anyways, any other gripes? I like this, though. This was great. <laughs> no, this no the, I, well oh well while we're at it the <laughs> tc i i just came off the tcu episode for those who haven't listened you should listen uh but you can hear my my refrain just wait for ohio state by the way you're gonna we're gonna have to do this again on the unc pod look tcu is a fantastic team in 2024 for their top four to be quote one of the best historically, and I'd like to see them up against like Domijan and Frank and Jenkins that <laughs> we were like, we took the L and we just like ran with it. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it. I stand by the take. Wait for the Ohio State. I'm pretty sure I put up. I'm not pretty sure. Here's your tease. I asked you play this year's Ohio State lineup against 2012 USC. It's like an actual conversation. It's it's not like a USC runs them over when you look at this. Again, we have that discussion on the show. So, you know what? It's the hope stretch, Jay. I'm trying to bring some excitement, and I promise I'm going to have that excitement today as we approach number two, Stanford, who is the topic of today's show. I'm sure we're going to have more men's thoughts from Jay, by the way, at the top of number one, UNC. So if you enjoyed that segment, rest assured, we'll get at least one more before we wrap up our preseason top 10. That said, let's get to number two, Stanford, a team who is, again, the definition of blue blood in women's college tennis a team with 21 national championships but is facing one of its longest droughts since they won their first NCAA title in 1982 again it's been since 2019 for these Stanford Cardinals and uh, I guess Stanford Cardinal whatever we're not doing that here early we're getting that one out of the way yeah the longest I'm aware um, the longest drought 
for Stanford, 91 to 97. That six-year drought where they didn't win an NCAA championship. Now, they had a similar drought to this, 2006 to 2010. But again, only two graduating classes. It's my favorite stat that we've had this whole offseason. Only two graduating classes for Stanford since that 1982 NCAA title have not won an NCAA championship during their four-year stretch. That, again, is the 95 and the 96 classes Stanford's in jeopardy of seeing another class added to that list this year as and this would be the first one under coach Farood. Yeah, another not the data head coach in 95 96. Again, it speaks to the spoils of Stanford women's tennis. We're talking about two classes ever since 82. No class ever under Coach Farood had has not won an NCAA title. That's how good this group has been historically, but Obviously, it has been a little bit of a roller coaster in this pandemic era. You go back to 2021, 15 and 5 group doesn't make the round of 16, 2022, and 19 and 6 group. Again, we didn't see them at the final site. Last year, dare I say, the ship was steadied for the Cardinal. 25 and 3 overall in the year. Two of those three losses coming at the National Indoor Championship, both fun matches, losses to Georgia, Duke, respectively. They didn't lose another match till the NCAA semifinal. This team found its stride, and obviously they had real depth last season. Ma, Yepafanova, Blake, all three who I think by the end of the season were playing top 20 tennis, certainly. Uh, maybe I, the fact that you would say Connie Ma was playing the worst of the three come the end of the season and Ma was the reigning NCAA singles finalist speaks to how good that top three was all season long, the depth that they had up there. And then again, Blokina, Shu, Choi. This is a really good singles lineup to end the season. Again, a team that ultimately gets knocked off in the NCAA semifinal 4-0 by NC State. But really impressive pathway to get there. To beat Oklahoma State 4-1, to beat Ohio State 4-1, to beat AM 4-0 in that quarterfinal. Given their struggles in 21 in 22J, given the fact that, again, they ripped off a, what, 20-match win streak from uh, their match against Vanderbilt, last match of the National Indoor, to that NCAA semifinal lost. Big picture, it's an underperformance because Stanford measures season successes by championships, but in the context of the COVID era, it's a step in the right direction. I'm not going to go overperformance, just felt right to have them back in the mix. Yeah, I feel like you can't use that word overperformance with yeah. Stanford. That that ship has sure. long sailed, but it was an emergence from some of the darkest days we've seen in Stanford history in a very, very long time. So in that regard, it was absolutely a success. Uh, and so to make the semifinals and also in the fashion that they did, I felt like they established themselves as one of the best teams. And honestly, they left a lot of meat on the bone in that match against NC State. I feel like looking back on that, they feel like they were in that conversation of being capable of winning the NCAA title. So it was a successful season for Stanford to have this core of that trio at the top you talked about to bring in freshmen like uh, Blockina. It was a successful season for Stanford. When you think about that Stanford semifinal against NC State, the headliner, of course, was Schneider 1-0 against Yepafanova. That was such a dramatic result, and to have the final score be 4-0 with that headline, you think, oh, it was a blowout. It wasn't. You're absolutely right. Maver Smith was 5-5. Five and five. Connie was in that match the entire time. You know, Angelica Blake was going three. Blokina was up a set and a break. Shue and Abrams went three, but I think Valencia won that first set. It was a real war. And again, it came down to Dittman Choi's second set breaker at number six. Uh, excuse me, didn't come down to that. Smith was ultimately the one to clinch. But, you know, again, that Sarah Choi was one of the losses that Stanford took at that number six spot in the match that ultimately saw them knocked out in the season. I think they'll accept, like, I think that's, if that's what you have to go through to beat that Stanford roster, they're okay with that loss, big picture. Because, again, Choi had been that beating heart for that team. And for NC State to beat her at that position, kind of emblematic. They were the better team on that day. You live with that one. Yeah, so what's been interesting about this, we'll call it the COVID era of Stanford, is that they've lost a lot of that 
uh, allure about sure. them or that like mythical legend where they're going to show up in May and win the title regardless of the season that they had. They have lost that and they've also lost a lot of the fear that other teams had uh, about them. And I feel like you've seen this Stanford team emerge in a lot more human ways. I think back to their round of 16 match against Oklahoma the year before where they just looked like they hadn't been on that stage before. And the reality was, was that that core of players hadn't. And I look back on that, on that NC State match, they were in winning positions in a lot of those matches you talked about, and they let those leads slip away. And they looked poor in doubles and they let those singles leads slip away. They looked like they hadn't been there before, and it's because they hadn't. And so so many of these other teams in the past had all at least been there. Regardless of the history they had had January through April, they were able to show up in May. And so I think you need this core of players to start having those experiences to develop those skills. And so I think you look back on that and it's a rare moment where we see Stanford look human, but without that, it's hard to see them getting back to the pinnacle. You're going to have to go through some of those losses. Absolutely. We say that all the time here on this show. That's the loss a core has to take. You learn how to win those matches by losing them first. And to your point, Ma, you know, honestly, all of them, Blake, Yepa, Fanova, they've never been in that spot. And that's why, again, that A&M match, for them to beat them 4-0 in the quarterfinals, for them to win five of six first sets and the doubles point against an A&M team that, again, had Goldsmith, Ewing, Astoyana, who had been there before as well. Like, it was a really strong first impression from Stanford in the NCAA championships that had us all thinking for a second, wait, like, are they going to beat NC State? Are they going to get back to the final? Is UNC going to have to conquer the Stanford mountain to get over that mountaintop or get to the mountaintop for the first time? And that speaks to how well this team clicked down the home stretch and why it was so encouraging is everyone's back as you look at 2023 or at least five of six starters making their return even before we get to the superstar new additions. And that's where we're going to really have some fun is what does their lineup look like? They bring back their top five. Yepa Fanova's back. Ma's back. Blake is back. Uh, back. Blake is back. There we go. That's a tongue twister. Say Blake is back 10 times and try not to screw it up. Angelica Blake is back. Blokina is back. That's another good tongue twister, by the way. Valencia Shoe is back as well. There's your top five. They are all back for Stanford. And I'll tell you what, when they weren't facing Hannah Villermoller this fall, everyone at Stanford had a pretty good fall across the board. And, you know, again, that nucleus, even sans crazy new additions, you'd have them in your top five no matter what because it features three top 20 players from last year. You figure Blokina takes a step forward. Shoe takes a step forward. It's a really good core to build around, Jay. Yeah, I mean, it. it is. And to your point, they had all solid falls. I think, you know, when I was reflecting back on 2023, it felt like a season where Connie Ma took a step back, mm-hmm. right? In her freshman de- debut, she makes the 2022 NCAA singles final. But in hindsight, it really wasn't that bad. And... I think for her to kind of get back to winning positions this fall, go 16 and three is a really encouraging sign for them. And they haven't, that core doesn't have the NCAA final or NCAA winning experience. But at this point, they're starting to take a lot of those lumps. They've now experienced a very long win streak, right? What does it look like to win week in, week out? They've also experienced some heartbreaking losses. They looked a mess at indoors, and they lost that NC State match that they would probably like back. So this core is experienced. There's a reason Angelica Blake is back, and that is to win an NCAA title. She absolutely does not want to leave the farm without a title and be that first person under Lili Farood to not win a title. Yeah, and you mentioned the regression. I think it was pretty clear. Her freshman season, she goes 32-9 and nine overall, 15-5 and five at the one spot last year, 9-3 and three at court two, 15-6 overall. Like She was better than the level we saw from her, and to your point, to see her bounce back, I think made the consolation finals of the National Fall Championships this year. And again, I think it was 12-3 and three over, or excuse me, 17-3 and three overall was the record. Uh, you look at what she was able to do uh, and who the losses were to, you know, again, 
lost to Scotty, lost to Villermuller, 7-6 in the third, lost to Julia Fliegner, round one of National Fall Championships, but then wins the consolation, excuse me, beats Guzman, beats El Sola, gets wins a win over an OB, gets a win over a Fenning, much more Ba- uh, much back to character, much more like her freshman fall, I should say, for Connie Ma. And, you know, again, why was she playing two? Yeah, she fell off a little bit, but Yepa Fanova had a really good year last year. 11-2 and two, uh, on court number one, 5-1 and one on court number two. And, you know, she didn't have the most active fall of all the players on the Stanford roster. Yepa Fanova 6-3 overall in singles matches, but... You'll take that top two against anyone. On the right day, that top two should go 2-0 and against their opponents. And maybe even on the right day, Angelica Blake, who we saw the least of only 1-1 one one in the fall. Like I'm rolling with that top three particularly. Who's ever three in that lineup should lose no more than two matches all season. Well, and you saw that with Blake last season, yeah. right? She was pretty much, and honestly, the past two seasons, I remember being yeah. so surprised she lost in that match against Oklahoma in the round of 16. I mean, she has been the go-to point at number three. I don't know the exact stats, but she hasn't lost more than three matches at three in the last two years. Yeah, I have the exact stats for you up in front of me. Last year, Angelica Blake, 16-0 and on court number three. Year before that, she goes 20-5 and in dual matches and singles, all of them at the number three spot, 13-2 and against Pac-12 opponents, 11-1 and in dual matches versus conference foes. Yeah, Five losses across two seasons. Like She can sustain that, right? Or if it's Yepa Fanova or Ma, whomever it is, that player is always going to be favored or at least 50-50, regardless of who they're facing. And then, you know, again, they've got five ranked Cardinals to start the 2024 season in the ITA singles rankings. You look for this Stanford group who's got uh, Connie Ma, the highest ranked of the group at 11. You've got Blake at 48, Yepa Fanova at 49. Valencia Shu is next up at number 50, Jay. You look at what Shu was able to do, 9-2 and two in her matches. And again, one loss to Villermoller for Shu. No shame in that one, given how good she was uh, throughout the course of this fall. Shu's other loss coming to Connie Ma, 6-3 in the third in the regional semifinal. She played five last year, and you start. We'll get to the freshman in a moment. You think, okay, maybe she's the one at Jeopardy. I don't know how you can say that after her fall. Yeah, she, to me, was the breakout player of the Stanford team. I mean, it's hard to call Connie Ma a breakout player, but it was good you know, to see her yeah. back in form. But her wins were great. I mean, Taylor Cataldi of Wisconsin, Jessica Alsola of Cal, who's a player who's played one for them, Last year, Mal Mashuka, a freshman at Cal who has had some great success on the ITA F circuit. Valencia Shu looks very strong and she was very strong for them down the home stretch at that number five position. And she, to me, took a step forward in this fall. And so it was good to see her make that step forward because you're right. I think anyone who's playing five or six or any in the lower half of the lineup, your spot's in jeopardy. Uh Anytime you're at Stanford, just knowing the sort of caliber that they bring in as freshmen. Yeah, uh, it's, again, does she have the biggest weapons of the group? Probably not. And Again, she's more of that classic five, six player going to grind you down. And by the way, she's going to be asked to play in those positions probably again this season. If that's the case, you're feeling really good about your singles roster. If you're Stanford, you feel like you can get a win at all six spots against any opponent. And, you know, again, why might you feel that way? Well, it's because not only do you have those Four returns we've talked about thus far. By the way, Blokina's the fifth-ranked uh, player for Stanford coming out of the fall. She is ranked not too much lower than her teammate, 64 in the ITA rankings. Had a pretty solid fall, I would say, overall for Blokina, 9-3. and three. Now the losses again to uh, Sai Shin Yu uh, in the Milwaukee Tennis Classic. A loss to Casey Wooten of Wake Forest. A loss to Connie, 6-3 in the third in the regional Again, solid beat Rabman. Um, that's guess probably that's her a, best win. Yeah, that beat Selma Cater. That's a pretty good win uh, of Maryland. But again, someone's who's going to be the odd person out? Because you've got those five coming back, and then you've got two of the top four freshmen, perhaps, coming into college tennis this season in Catherine Huey, Elena Yu, and for those of you unfamiliar with Catherine, your 2023 US, US Open junior Girls singles champion Elena Yu, your 2022 Girls 18s USTA national champion, getting that wild card into the U.S. Open. 
I mean, we didn't see that much from either of them, Jay, throughout the course of the fall. You seven and two, uh, Hui ultimately what one and two overall. But did she get a win? Uh, it says she got a win. Let me oh. see. Who is that win against for Catherine? I can get that for you right now. Her victory was against Joelle Lands of Hawaii, whom she beat 0-0 for what it's worth. Counts as a win, Jay, her first in Stanford colors. Um, look, they're both very, very good. I saw Elena Yu. I'm going to go first because you doubted Catherine. Uh, right there, Jay. So you've lost your right to go. First. No, I'm I, just I, I just, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, I knew she was owing to it all Americans. I didn't recall their trip to Hawaii. And, these yeah. two played in this year's USTA Girls 18 semifinals. Hui ultimately wins the match. But when I watch them play, Elena, you screams number six singles position. She is just going to grind you down. The energy she plays with, you want that dose uh, of that energy, that freshman energy in a six spot where they can be successful as well and channel in the most positive ways. Like she, if she's your number six singles, you feel so good about that number six spot. And again, like, I just think she has the game for it. And yet, Catherine Owen won the junior, U.S. Open Juniors. You know, again, she has had that recent success. She beat you in that semifinal match and probably comes in a little bit hotter, I suppose, from the resume standpoint. There are two really good options, Jake. It's, it's going to be a platoon system. Whoever is feeling a little nook or cranny here, you can sit out that day because they've got seven real options, dare I say, to play anywhere in the singles lineup. Which of those freshmen has impressed you more over the last six months, Jay? Well, it's Catherine Hui, undoubtedly. I mean, Eliana Yu, I felt like, has consistently been really the number one player in her high school class and winning that 2022 hardcourt title is a massive accomplishment. I mean, the names who have won that are the best in you know, U.S. women's tennis history. It has been downhill for her since then. She went and played on the ITF Pro Circuit. I think there was a stretch where she lost like 13 straight first round matches. She had a little bit of a resurgence there in the 2023 hard courts, but it has not been good for Eliana Yu over the past 18 months. And we really didn't see much from her this fall. I mean, the level of competition she played was very low throughout the duration of the collegiate fall. She loses to Weirsholm of Cal, Villar Muller of Cal. So I really don't have a lot of confidence in Eliana Yu. I equated it to she's like a San Diego specialist, like her and Daria Freeman play their best tennis at the Barnes Tennis Center. And like outside of that, we just we really have not seen anything from her that is convincing to be that she is going to knock one of these players out of their spot in the lineup. Have That's you seen the, her play Eliana in person? Yu. Have you seen her play in person yet? I haven't. Have you seen Catherine play in person? No, I haven't seen her play in person either. I've watched, I will say I've watched much more of Catherine Hui uh, on streams than I have of Eliana Yu. And Hui's weapons are a little bit more pronounced, but I'm just telling you, when Yu is fit, when she's healthy, and I do think there have been some injury issues for her that have clouded some of the results. Well, well, let's push back on that, though, because oh, okay. she played pretty consistently between 2022 and 2023 hard courts. I mean, she played a lot of ITF matches, and she lost all of them. Fair. I, 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 you know like, the record better than me. I don't know what injuries we're I talking just know, about. I think she had some knee issues that I think kept her out a little bit this summer. Um, was Was my takeaway from the girls' 18s. But again, like she did play nine matches in... You know, three sets against Villermuller at the regionals. The straight set loss to Weirsholm. You mentioned the only two losses. Not shabby, like not too shabby. Those are two top fifty players certainly coming out of the fall. But I mean, again, I think they're all. I, I think they're both legitimate. It, it's an eye testing, Jay. This is purely. I just the level I saw from her, the energy that she brings as well. It screams I should be at six. And again, like way went one and two. Over the course of the fall, I haven't yeah. seen. I mean, she really went zero and two, right? She lost yeah, sure. to Amelia Owner of UCSB. She didn't play that much. Yeah, but she did. Play, she was injured as well. She had yeah. to pull out of, I believe, the sixty k down in Southern California, which she had a wild card to. I think she's healthy now. We saw her later in November, where she had some good results. At least she won a few matches there. So, I mean, the weapons are much clearer with Catherine Hui than they are 
with Eliana Yu, the ball striking is much clearer. But yeah, I mean, we didn't see anything. Like, it's really tough. Of course, I mean, winning the U.S. Open is a massive accomplishment. Uh, but certainly right now, for me, these are on these players are on very different planes right now. And by the way, we've brought up this step. When was the last time we got a junior slam champion coming to college as a freshman? She's the last one since in the singles realm. Oh, it was on the women's side. It was forever. It was quite ago. some time, right? Yeah. Obviously, we have. Uh, I, I don't think it's Perez ever happened and as a finalist, but as yeah, a I don't champion, think reigning champion. I don't think we'd ever had it in the U.S. Open. It's a big freaking deal. It is. Huge. And it speaks Huge. to, again, college tennis as a pathway to the pros. Obviously, Stanford as a door, what they open, not just athletically, but academically as well. But that's some serious pedigree. Again, at the same time, you mentioned it earlier. Elena, you won San Diego. Like, the list of players who have won that are the best of the best. By the way, two San Diego champions with Reese Brantmeyer in college right now as well. It's it's a really good like I it's pedigree. They both have the pedigree. And again, Valencia Shoe had an awesome fall. Blokina was solid throughout the course of the fall. You're gonna have to find playing time for all four of those players throughout the course of the season. And I think the top three is pretty locked. Now I want to get into the order there uh, in a second. But of those four, Jay, how are you listing them heading into the spring of Blokina, Shu, and the two freshmen, Hui and you? Well, first of all, Reese never won 18s hardcore. 16s champion. 16s. Okay. Oh, oh should we count 12 and 14s too? No, that's in San Diego. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, it's, it's worth it. Okay. Noting. Yes. Uh, I So I think Eliana Yu is on the outside looking in at seven. I think Shu is at six. I think Blockina is. We'll get into Blockina. Uh, I think she's at five. I well, would go way at four. Can we get into Blockina now? What has okay. you dropping her to that five spot? So I coming into college as a freshman last season, she was in the same conversation as a Maddie Sieg and a Reese Brantmeyer. She beat Reese Brantmeyer at they've changed the names, but the, the Indian Wells or whether sure. it was Easter Bowl or the International Spring Championships. You know, she beat Reese Brantmeyer there. And she was incredibly inconsistent in her freshman season. The highs were high, the lows were low, and that needs to change her sophomore season. And so that's what gives me pause about Blockina going into her sophomore season because the weapons, you could say, should put her up into a three spot, but the inconsistency is what you ding her for and then you get really concerned about putting her at five and being like well if she's inconsistent this might not work and she hasn't at least not in the duration of her freshman season committed to a game style i mean we could go from a very aggressive to big high moon balls and so it's an untrustworthiness that exists right now that makes me question where exactly you put her in the lineup she is definitely the most volatile of the seven like players on the list in terms of what you're going to get level match in match out. A hundred, a hundred percent. And she's a personality that I would say differs from the traditional Stanford archetype in a way in that what sense in that it is a lot more volatile than what we are used to seeing. I mean, I feel like you'd have to harken back to like Teresa Logar, which is certainly before your time <laughs> uh, <laughs> when we've had someone this uh, vocal and expressive and inconsistent, both in demeanor and in game style. Here's the thing. 15 and six in dual matches last year, three and zero in NCAA tournament play. She brought the goods and you said it. She's a PTP. And a hundred percent. And she can do everything. Like the lefty can throw up the moon balls, can find the angles, can drive the ball by you, slap it by you as well. She brings that fire, brings that intensity, a little bit of a wild card. Again, you're playing with fire here. Sometimes it'll light the entire building. Sometimes it'll burn the building down, but she brought the goods. Like she was a PTP and you could argue of this four player shoe you way included she is the highest upside like the clearest cut four and maybe the one who on the best day should be breaking into that conversation with Blake Yepafanova and Ma and not with these other three at the same time the steadiness you might be getting if you're coach Farood from a three of shoe 
Yu, and Hui. I feel like I know those three commodities pretty well when healthy, the level you're going to get from them match in, match out. And again, that's what's going to make it so fascinating is where does Coach Farood find pockets in the schedule to play all of these players in significant enough matches? And, you know, that's why the Sunday, January 14th matchup against Texas A&M is something we all have circled right away because it's one of our first matches of the season. And we're going to get to see them all pushed so clearly here. But... I don't know, Jay. Like, that is what makes this lineup so fascinating. It is straight up seven deep, and if they wanted to play UNC top sevens instead of just top sixes, I'd be down for it. It'd be exceptional matches everywhere, and they should feel like they can win at every flight in every match. Again, pedigree for pedigree, slot for slot. We're talking about benching a girls' 18s champion or benching which junior we US Open say? champion or benching a Blokina who went 3-0 at number four in tournament play or benching a Valencia who was a top 50 player. Yeah, and I mean, if one of it's you crazy. or Huey gets benched, these are caliber of players that typically didn't come to college. Sure. I forget I forget exactly the stat, but you look at the last girls 18s hardcourt champion to come to college, you have to go back like 20 plus years and they also went to Stanford. But that caliber of player, 2022, a little bit of a down year for hard courts. I will say the field, not as great, but in general, and we talk about the US Open champion, like the pedigrees are all there. And yeah, I mean, the Blockina piece, you want her to be so much better because the weapons are absolutely there. I mean, she should be trying to push Connie Ma down into this conversation be like, hey, Connie, your game style is more closer to <laughs> Valencia Shu. You should get down to four through six. There's just, I, but I also think we're going to see a lot of lineup permutations here in four through six. That's atypical of Coach Farood. We typically don't see a lot of movement. But look, Angelica Blake, she only played two matches in the fall. I mean, she's riding her ranking solely based on that one win over Reese Brantmire. So she's that good, right? She can be a top 10 player, but she's been injured since all American. She's had wrist injuries. She's been in a cast, you know, for much of the fall. So I think they're going to factor in and maybe not play as not play this full lineup all the time. I think everyone's going to get a good look. You yelled at me in this about this in your opening tangent. I take this team against either of the Texas national champions. I take this team against UNC last year and put them up for a real fight and not say those other teams walk over this group, particularly again, this group has now been calloused and lost in an NCAA semifinal and seen the big dogs and competed against them before. These seven are so good. Whomever the odd person out is on that day in the lineup again, Gonna have some gripes thinking I should belong in this lineup. I can play at this level because they absolutely can. The doubles permutations are gonna be fascinating as well. And right now, Stanford, two ranked teams, Blake Blokina back together, only one and one, but again, that had to do with the Blake injury. They're 27. Ma Yepafanova, seven and three this fall. They're 28 in the country. Again, Yu, Hui, Shu, game style profiles, maybe not the most traditional doubles profiles at the same time you're gonna have to grind those players down I think you probably Blake break up Yepafanova and Ma and try to split them accordingly because Blake Blokina do have that more institutional know-how playing together and again those two fitting as well as they do just roll with it why mess with something that works I'm fascinated by the doubles lineup as much as I am four through six, Jay. And honestly, I'm fascinated by all segments of the lineup because do you play Connie back at one after this fall? If Angelica Blake is healthy, she was the second best player of those three to end last season. Is it time for her to get a look after her 15-0 or 16-0, whatever it was, season in 2023? And what about Yepafanova? She was clearly the number one in that lineup at the end of last year, regardless of what happened with Schneider and the weapons she possesses. Certainly, you feel like she can play on her terms against anyone. You have so many lineup questions for this team, Jay. And you're just like, this is one of those years where Stanford would never do this, but I'd rack up the doubleheaders. I just want as much data on these players as possible because it's a wide open question. The levels are very similar, one through seven. Yeah, I feel like particularly one through three, it's a tough call, right? I would argue Angelica Blake was playing 
the best tennis on the team in the late stages of May. Now, maybe not better than Yepifanova, but at least at that level. I mean, her run to being an All-American and her, you know, she knocked out Savannah Brodus at the NCAAs in in the singles draw there. So she was playing some great tennis. I hope she's fully healthy. That's a key consideration moving into the spring season. And then you go, well, look, if Connie's back and, hey, she's at three, we're not... Do they lose a match at three is the question because in theory they shouldn't, right? Like any of these players should essentially be able to run back Blake's undefeated record at three. They're very, very good at that spot. And again, there's some room for progress given Miles' struggle at two. They could take a leap there mathematically, win a few more matches. And four with Blockina's. I mean, she was much better down the home stretch, but she lost matches last year. She DNF'd a lot of times. Even Shu at five, like you would expect her to be, but you expect the record to be better at five. That's the craziest part, Jay. And this is where I get most excited as we get into this MVP conversation. You could project Stanford to be better at every single singles position from a record standpoint from last season. Even one from Yapafanova. Maybe not better, but certainly match that number. And I guess they can't be better at three because they were undefeated there. But they could match it, which is the craziest thing to say. You would hope this team, just the totality of talent they have, can continue to improve in doubles as well. But again, they beat AM in doubles in the NCAA quarterfinal. Yeah, they lost to NC State, but NC State had Smith and Schneider, had Rejecki and Miller. Like, they had the system. That's not a bad loss ever in doubles. Although it could be the difference between NCAA title and not this year, because again, that's how much depth there is in the singles lineups for UNC and Stanford. That's why that doubles point is going to be so significant. It's a cop-out answer whenever you say doubles for MVP, because again, it's always obvious. That said, with the depth between Stanford and UNC, you might feel like it does come down. Whoever wins that doubles point is up 1-0, has that little bit of extra uh, leniency going into the singles that might make the difference. That said, by MVP, most valuable position, it's the number one spot. Like, who is going to step up and be the player in this Stanford lineup? Because they have a lot of options. But if it's the best version of Connie, I think that's probably the best version of this team. I still think her best that I've seen in college is better than what I've seen from a Yepa Finova or a Blake. If it's the best version of Yepa Finova, I think that's also a good sign. If it's Blake, like, like it, it's fascinating. I just want to see who's their number one. Who's going to step up of the three and say, this is my spot, and I ain't giving it up to the rest of you, even though we all play a really high level of tennis. That's my biggest question, and that's my MVP. Jay, what do you think? I think it's a good call. I think that race should light a fire under the team. I think one of the large questions that surrounds this Stanford team and this is not intended to be like bulletin board material, but it probably will be, is just the effort. And this is a team with not a lot of players with pro aspirations. And that's very unique at this elite level of college tennis. It certainly is juxtaposed to teams like Texas A&M or North Carolina somewhat, but I felt like this past season there were inconsistent efforts across the team, whether that was off the court from a fitness standpoint or or on the court on the improvement with improving your game, adding more weapons. Like, I don't know if we're going to see big jumps from these players. And I think in an environment where You have other teams that are training exhaustively for a career in pro tennis. I'm very curious to see how much better these players are in specifically those three, Blake, Yepafanova, and Connie Ma. I think the idea of a race for number one would be the best thing for this team. I think the worst case is that some of them don't care as much where they play. And they're okay playing two and three. And I think you paint a picture where they're all trying to beat each other out for that spot. That's the best thing because it's not clear to me who the leader is on this team that's going to put in that professional effort day in, day out. You know this program better than anyone, Jay. Certainly anyone in our business, in this college tennis intelligentsia. 
what is your biggest concern for them? Because on paper, there are no concerns. Is that it? Is it's just, again, the totality of some of them want to do other things in life, which, by the way, no one's knocking, but it's just at this highest level, to your point, talent isn't always going to be enough. You have to put in those extra hours. Is that just straight up your biggest concern? I th- And I think this is more of a meta point about uh-huh. the Stanford program. Which well, it is, is you. Say- <laughs> yes, good call. Yes. Uh, most people will not get that. Yeah, but um, the I think Stanford has won a lot of those championships by being significantly the most talented team. And year in, year out, recruited the creme de la creme of U.S. collegiate players. And they don't need to necessarily maximize talent or be a program that significantly develops those players. I think that era has passed us. And so my concern for the program writ large is, do you bring in these talented players and not maximize their potential? And if you're in that situation, then that might not be enough to get you over the hump uh, and beat a team like North Carolina because pound for pound, pound for pound, this team is probably the most talented team in the country. Mm. And actually, pound for pound, unequivocally, I would say this is the most talented team in the country. But they risk not maximizing that talent. I am not going to say they're the most talented team. They are as talented as UNC. I have no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The pedigree is there for all of these players across the board. Like any other team, you, Huey, they're competing for probably number one spots in lineups. And again, well, I, I, I want to push back on that though, because you look at like an Anika Yarlagada. Sure. She is not as talented as a tennis player as the players that Stanford is bringing in. That Riley might- Tran is. Not as talented as a tennis player, but but, but the they difference have maximized. Is, no, but the difference is also experience, which you can't quantify as clearly. But that's why, because it's a freshman to senior gap, like that's where that bridge is gapped for UNC. Is even if you are more talented, there's nothing like third set jitters in an NCAA final. And Tran and Yarlagata got to play through that last season. That extra bit of experience that whoever is in that lineup for Stanford of those freshmen just won't have. And that's where I think that experience levels things. According, uh, uh, when equated with the talent, but like, but so okay. then you agree that they're more talented tennis players that gets uh, negated by things like experience. I don't know, Tran and you. There's a lot of similarities there, just in the way they grind, the physicality they bring, the energy they bring. I don't know if I would say straight up more talented. I mean, Blokina and Tan Gillig is a fascinating like comparison because I think there are some similarities there with athleticism and totality of things to do. That is that is not who I would equate at all. But just the totality of things they do on court, like just their ability, to, they can do a little bit of everything. You disagree? Anyways, well, I, I I don't think the comp is on athleticism there. I think that's fair enough. And no, yeah, towards Tan Gillig is what you're going to yeah. say. Anyways, Crawley Ma really clean off of both wings. Like again, you understand? Yeah, that's why a, it I works mean, so well game style wise. What they bring to the table talent-wise is pretty similar. Yeah, and again, like, Brantmeyer versus Yepifanova can just crush a tennis ball. There's a lot of great things across the board for these two teams. I agree. Stanford's as good, and the best part is you're going to see them tested this season. Obviously, they're hosting a kickoff weekend that they will be heavy favorites. They face Colorado first, then the winner of Maryland and UNLV should they advance, but even before that, in San Diego, they're facing San Diego, Texas A&M, opening weekend of the season that'll tell us right away how does this squad compete against a really good A&M team of course they've got Texas coming to Stanford this year after they traveled to Austin last season they've got Pepperdine coming on April 5th as well obviously they've got the conference matches USC UCLA at home they're going to be at Washington and at Cal this season I mean, again, they've got AM, Texas, and perhaps three, not perhaps, three to four national indoor championship matches to go along with that Pac-12 schedule. We're going to see this team push, Jay. What part of the schedule are you looking for most closely? 
Well, I love the addition of Texas A&M. Uh, you know, they've consistently had Texas and Pepperdine on the schedule. By and large, the Stanford program is not an aggressive scheduler, and it's really hurt them when it comes to being seated at the NCAA championships. And I would like to see them schedule much more aggressively rather than have to reel off 22 wins just to fight for a top eight spot. Uh, so I like the addition of Texas A&M. That's a fun rematch of the quarterfinal I don't know how good the Pac-12 is going to be this year. I think Stanford is clearly head and shoulders above, you know, teams like USC and UCLA. I think Cal is very much in the mix as well. But by and large, I think they should get through that schedule pretty unscathed. For me, the match that I circle is Pepperdine. Uh This was a, a match last season that had to get canceled because of weather so we never got to see it that's another reason why stanford was fighting for that top eight spot towards the end of the season it's on april 5th so pretty late in the season but that one at that point uh we should know a lot about these teams we should know exactly where these players are playing and pepperdine top eight team so that one is one i'm most looking forward to love that as a late addition particularly if usc ucla do struggle out of the gates or can't get themselves up to top 16 stanford might i mean i think we both anticipate even though it's indoors stanford will get at least two wins at the national indoor championships thus hopefully if you're a stanford fan consolidate a top eight position with another successful pac-12 season but yeah the texas a&m pepperdine matches three top 10 matchups on your schedule at least by the preseason rankings right away way. It's a good underlying thing to fall back upon should something go astray, whether it's in Pac-12 regular season play or at the National Indoor Championships. My favorite weekend on the schedule, Jay, is the UCLA-USC weekend, but that has more to do with I just want to see how UCLA and USC compete against Stanford than perhaps any concerns for Stanford on that portion of the weekend. But they're the prohibitive Pac-12 favorites. Like, again, the experience they bring back, the roster they bring back. They're just the prohibitive favorites. This team is ridiculous. Like, this team brought back its top five from an NCAA semifinalist team, a team that won 20 straight matches last year leading into that semifinal, a team that, again, played NC State far closer than that 4-0 scoreline appeared to be and a team that is now one year more experienced, one year more desperate. And you kind of brought it up. This is something you could say for all of our inner circle contenders, but particularly this year, you feel like Stanford and the Ohio State men and honestly, the Texas men. You could see a lot of similarities between these three programs in the sense that you have the rosters, you have the experience. Can you get over the mental hump? That's the only question as it relates to the Stanford team, really, Jay, right? Because you can't question their talent. You can't question their options. I would say the same thing for Texas and Ohio State. Whatever the lineups are ultimately one through six rolled out as, it shouldn't matter. This team should be able to win all seven points in a dual match. And that's why the standards this year have to be national championship. Even if this team hasn't been there before, they're too experienced. You know, again, you're going to get another year with Mon Yepafanova. So you do have that in the back pocket. So it's maybe an expectation now for the next two seasons. But this is Blake's last shot. And again, do you want to be the first class under Coach Farood to not win an NCAA championship? Angelica Blake is coming back because she wants that answer to be no. This team has the highest possible standards heading into next season, Jay, because they have the highest possible ceiling. That's win a national championship. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much more to add. That's absolutely right. Look, and they, this is a team that, top to bottom, one through six, and doubles, although doubles has historically been an Achilles heel. Which, again, just not to – I apologize cutting you off. That's a huge point. Like, they've been bad at doubles these last three years, and they've been – doubles has never had to be their thing. I just don't know how you can go down 1-0 against UNC and expect to win. And, like, that is my biggest question mark. When we look at ceiling floor, I feel like for them, you know, again – if they can go up 1-0 on teams, if they find something in doubles, you're just not going to beat them in four singles matches, barring something special occurring. And UNC could pull off that special. One team, I think, has the depth to do that right now. Maybe even Georgia A&M on the right days, particularly if Brandstein is back. But man, is doubles so critical for this team ceiling, Jay. Because again, to go down 1-0 in a hypothetical NCAA final against this UNC team, that's just the kiss of death. 
And that's sort of what you feel will happen right now. And Stanford for so long has gone down 1-0 in NCAA matches and come back and found four. But if they take doubles against this North Carolina team, there is zero doubt that they can find three singles matches. Zero doubt. And so that needs to be fixed. And it's tough because you look at North Carolina, I mean, so much doubles pedigree. I mean, they literally had the two NCAA finalists. They switched them up for the team event and ended up working fine. Like everyone on that team is playing doubles. And who on this team is playing doubles? Like, I mean, Blake and Blockina looked much better down the home stretch. But like outside of that, like, Again, I mentioned the pound for pound thing. That's a singles thing. Like, I just think they need to fix the doubles. And we have no reason to believe that it's been fixed because we didn't see enough of the fall. And that is why they're the number two team. That's one of the reasons why. But to me, that's a huge reason why. Mm -hmm. Because outside of that, I said it. I think think they're more talented than North Carolina. Um, But I don't think they have the experience in doubles. I think that will very much hurt them. And of course, they don't have the experience in winning an NCAA team title, which is always going to knock you down a peg. The single biggest, two single biggest differences, the fact that they don't have that doubles pedigree where UNC has it everywhere and the fact that they've never played in a national final. At least this group has never played in one together and UNC has played in so many national finals. They are as calloused of a team as maybe we have ever had in women's college tennis. Yeah, that defines their ceiling and floor. Again, national championship aspirations. That's what this team has. And for what it's worth, it's the last season of the Pac-12, a conference that historically has meant so much to women's college tennis, a conference obviously Stanford has had so much success within, but them, UCLA, USC, like this is the last chance uh, or the last time we might see these teams compete steadily uh, for quite some seasons until we know what the college tennis landscape looks like moving forward. And so another reason that USC-UCLA weekend is going to be so special. By the way, Stanford's ACC bound, at least for now. And again, you might get to see a lot of UNC-Stanford matchups over the years, dare I say the two strongest programs we've had over the last 10 seasons it's a fascinating 2024 for the cardinal jay final thoughts on all things belong to you well sentimental it's also the last season of the toby tennis center which is getting demolished in june and it's almost poetic in terms of the end of the pac-12 and the winningest one of the winningest programs in any sport is stanford women's tennis and so for that to be demolished i it's it's sad to see. Uh, and then, of course, the moving to the ACC and the disruption that's going to cause and just the schedule and the familiarity. It's going to be a whole different ballgame for the Stanford program. The benefit that they have over many of these other teams that we've talked about, particularly North Carolina, is pretty much everyone is back next year as well. And they bring in some pretty heavy hitters from a recruiting standpoint. So Stanford is still here to stay, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to seeing this team compete because, again, they can win this title, absolutely. They have the goods. They have the experience, too. We're not talking about freshmen. We're talking about, you know, again, shoe is a junior. Blokina, sophomore. Blake, fifth year. Maya Epifanova, juniors. Class has seen some things. Are they ready to make that leap? Do they need another season of, dare I say, peppering an experience? That's what we're going to find out in 2024. Stanford, your preseason number two. If this is your number two team, it speaks to how good our number one is. And we will be back for our final preseason edition of the Deciding Point next week as we break down our preseason number one, I guess. Spoiler it's going to be UNC. We'll talk about all things Tar Heel tennis next week. For now, John J. Parsons, one week away from the start of college tennis. What can we expect from no ad, no problem? Well, we're rounding out our men's preseason content. So we're going to produce our favorites episode, Talk Virginia, Talk Texas, see who we think will win the title, go back and forth, debate that. I'm uh, going to do a mailbag episode. I always like when people send in questions. Those are always fun. Make some predictions from a team perspective, an individual perspective. So looking forward to that. And then, I mean, we just get started to start previewing some of these matches. I'll be in Austin for the Texas-Virginia men's oh. match in less than two weeks. So it's exciting times. Looking forward to listening to those con- uh, pieces of content. Looking forward to seeing all you produce throughout the course of the year. Of course, looking forward to having you on our final show as well as throughout the regular season as well. And you all listeners can 
hear those shows, excuse me, by listening to our Great Shot podcast feed. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on anything throughout the course of this college tennis season. By the way, go subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as we get back rocking and rolling over there here in the new near future. Of course, the reason we can do all that is because of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him, and a thank you to you as well, John J. Parsons, for tolerating all of my nonsense over the past five weeks. I asked this to Chris as well. I like the December start. I like this rush of college tennis, this one-month binge for us to prepare. Uh, given we only have one preseason podcast left, I, I think this is our schedule moving forward. I think this is what we do, Jay, as we get to years four, five, and six, and this bad boy learns how to walk. I mean, at some point, we're just going to do it in the first week of January, all 10, just knock them all out, because there's so much change and additions, and it's going to happen later and later. We're going to be doing preseason rankings in March at some point with all of these like new additions and who comes back. But yeah, it's uh, it's helpful to have more information for sure. Yeah, well, until then, for the fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Ruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.